the book of Genesis. In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things, and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion, and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in the story. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what he's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Now, at this point of the story, none of that's clear. You just have to keep reading and watch the promise develop. And so the rest of the book focuses on Abraham and his family. First, Abraham himself, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions, he's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife, and so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they can't have children, and so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time, God bails Abraham out. And in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called a covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. 
God asked Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually, and he dies at a good old age. Now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. He goes on to take four wives, even though he really only loves one, Rachel, and this creates all of these rivalries in the family. The only thing that humbles Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban, who cheats him out of years of his life. The tables have finally turned. And so it's a humbled Jacob that returns to his homeland. And in a very strange story, Jacob ends up wrestling with God as he demands that God bless him. Some things never really change, do they? However, God honors his determination, and he passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And he renames Jacob as Israel, which means wrestles with God. Now, it's this last part of the book, the story of Jacob's sons, where all the themes come to a head. Jacob loves his second to youngest son, Joseph, more than any of the others, and he gives him this special jacket. And the ten older sons come to hate Joseph, and so they kidnap him, and they plan to kill him, but instead they decide to just sell him into slavery in Egypt, where he ends up in prison. Talk about family failure. But God is with Joseph, and he orchestrates Joseph's release from prison, and Pharaoh ends up elevating Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt. And so Joseph saves the nation of Egypt during a famine, and he also ends up saving his brothers and his family from starving to death. And so once again, we can see the folly and the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness, who subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save life. And this is actually what Joseph says right near the end of the book. He says to his brothers, you all planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. Now, these words are strategically placed at the end of the book because they summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but the book as a whole. From Genesis 3 onward, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil, but this God is not going to leave his world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless people despite their failures. You can see this especially in how that mysterious promise about the descendant of the woman gets developed throughout the book. So remember, Genesis 3, God promised that this wounded victor would come and crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. And the author then connects this promise directly to the line of Abraham. This is a part of how God's going to bring his blessing to the nations. Now, from Abraham, this promise gets connected to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And this is how. In an extremely important poem in chapter 49, in aging Jacob, he's on his deathbed, he wants to bless his 12 sons. And when he comes to Judah, Jacob predicts that Judah will become the tribe of Israel's royal leaders, and that one day a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations and fulfill God's promise to restore the garden blessing to all of the world. And then after this, Jacob dies. And later, Joseph dies too. And the growing family remains in Egypt. And so the book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises left hanging and undeveloped. And it forces you to turn the page to see how it's all going to turn out. But for now, that's the book 
of Genesis. Uh, good morning, my name is Keelan. Um, I'm going to be reading through Romans 9, 1 through 33. Um, we're going to just do it, this has a lot of mentions to the Old Testament in here, so Krista's going to read the Old Testament sections just for clarity, I think. Uh, um, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and uneasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the world of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are, of his, uh, they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promised are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends on human will or exertion, but oh, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy for this? Uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what his, uh, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He has the, uh, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. 
and in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would, lend, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, good morning. For anyone that doesn't know me, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just before we think about what the scriptures have to say to us today, uh, it's good to uh, have Jonathan back with us. Um, great to see you making progress. I'm sure he'd love to talk to you about his, uh, his progress with his uh, knees having been replaced and all of that, uh, but please remember that he is on leave, so don't be asking him all sorts of questions about church stuff um, because he's on leave, so but it's great to have you here. Um, it's also good to be able to uh, welcome Eddie Bang and his family, uh, and that's... Uh, Bill Roosen is going to have a formal um, sort of welcome for them a little later in the service, but I just wanted to acknowledge your presence here with us today, um, Eddie's wife Karen and sons Alex and Andrew, um, so welcome. It's great to have you on board. We're looking forward to what God does through your ministry amongst us in the next six months. I'm going to pray and then we'll have a think about what God's word has to say to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us, that you invite us into relationship with yourself, and that that invitation comes with no strings attached. We don't have to perform anything to be worthy of your grace. You have done it all for us in Jesus. We're so grateful for that. Help us now as we look at your word and seek to gain an understanding of it, that you will speak to our hearts and help us to learn the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, you're probably aware, we're working our way through the book of Romans in a different sort of a way because we've been doing reading Romans backwards um, and 
you'll be interested to know, if you've been following along, that we're actually moving to the second section uh, of this study through the, the book. Um, so our first section where we looked at chapters 12 to 16 was a community called to peace. And our second section now where we're going to look at chapters 9 to 11 is our common family history. Um, so the, the key part about understanding all of this uh, is that a lot of the context of the book to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, is found in the end part of the book. So by coming to it in this sort of back-to-front way, it, it helps us to gain an understanding of, of the, the real theology that Paul brings in in the first part of the book um, and, and how that applies in real life in the second part of the book. Um, so uh, Scott McKnight, who, who wrote the... Uh, the book Reading Romans Backwards that we've sort of based, loosely based this series on, he, he calls this section that we're going to start today, chapters 9 to 11, he says this is a narrative leading to peace. So we've looked in the first part of the series at the, the church in Rome as being a community that's called to peace. And now he comes back to a narrative um, and, and we see, as if you picked it up in, in the reading, and thanks to, to Keelan and Christopher for doing that sort of two-part reading, um, it, you saw in that reading that there was a lot of reference to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Genesis. And um, we had that video there about the book of Genesis, which really ties in well with this. And so this is a narrative that leads to peace. It's important for us to remember that in the church at Rome there were two groups of people, the weak and the strong. And um, as we are thinking about what we're going to look at in chapters 9 to 11, we'll be re just reminding ourselves of these two groups that the, the letter is it's written to the whole church, but these groups are part of the church. So there's the weak who were generally Jewish Christians. They were recently returned to Rome, having been previously expelled from Rome. Uh, and then when a new emperor came in, they were able to come back. They, because of that um, experience of having been refugees, they were likely poorer than the other Christians in the church. And they had a desire to keep Jewish dietary practices uh, and they also had a tendency to sit in judgment of those who did not practice the Torah rules, the, the Old Testament laws and rules that the Jewish people would follow. And so they looked down at the Gentile Christians who didn't follow those laws and they, they judged them for the fact that they weren't following those laws. And who are the strong? They were... Gentile Christians mostly, might have been some Jewish believers amongst them, but mostly these were people who hadn't been exiled from Rome, uh, and so they were more established in society, they were richer, um, and they embraced liberty from Jewish traditions, but they despised the weak amongst them who kept to certain food laws and Sabbath laws and things like that, as the Jewish people did. Um, and, and the strong, as they're characterised here, they despised the weak. So as we then come to this narrative in, verses nine, uh, in chapters 9 to 11, 
and our common family history, we're, we're going to have three messages on this. And today's message is learning our family history. And um, it's written like that for a reason, because our family history is his story. And what we will find as we look through uh, chapter 9 today is that the story of Israel is the story of God. So, the big question that comes through here is that if Israel is God's chosen people, does the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church mean that the word of God has failed? Does the inclusion of the Gentiles mean that the word of God has failed? Because uh, you think about it, like, all throughout the Old Testament, we're told that Israel was God's chosen people. They were the special ones. They were the ones that were blessed. And we'll, we'll come to some of that shortly. Um, and so, does that mean that, that God's failed somehow here? He's got his chosen people, but now in the church, and in the church at Rome that Paul sends this letter to, there's only a small group of Jewish believers and there's a much larger group of Gentile believers. And so the question might be, well... Did God fail? Because these Israelites, these Jews, they're meant to be God's chosen people. How is it that so many of the Jews, they don't seem to be following Jesus. They don't seem to be part of God's people now. So that's the big question. And... Uh, I've got a, a little quote here that I thought was, was helpful from Leon Morris from his commentary. And uh, he's, he's talking about um, chapters 1 to 8, really, of Romans and, and how that leads into chapter 9, reading it forwards. Uh, for his doctrine, this is Paul, for his doctrine of justification and sanctification, sanctification, Paul has consistently appealed to the Old Testament as sacred scripture. His opening sentence speaks of the gospel as promised in holy scriptures, that's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and in that scripture the Jews appear as God's chosen people. How can he, that's God, how can God establish a system of salvation for Gentiles on the basis of the scripture that gives a special place to Jews. You see the question there? The scriptures, the Old Testament, give a special place to Jews, but here's God giving a system of salvation to Gentiles. How does that work? That's the question that we're seeking to answer today. Um, the big idea, now I've actually split the big idea up because I think, by and large, this passage is written to the weak in the church in Rome, uh, in chapter 9 here. When we look at 9 to 11, sort of 9 and, half of, uh, 9 and 10 and half of chapter 11 are more directed towards the weak, and then the second half of chapter 11 is more directed towards the strong. But there's a bit of both through it all. But the big idea for the weak is that Israel is made up of those 
who are children of the promise. That's a pretty radical idea that Paul's putting forward here. Uh, The big idea for the strong is that our family history is his story. Um, And we'll come back more to that as we go through. The overview of today's message is that uh, if you want to split the passage up, verses 1 to 3 are Paul's concern for Israel. 4 to 5 is Israel receives the blessings of God. Uh, 6 to 13, Israel is, is the children of God's promises. I'm going to talk about the grammatical issue there um, momentarily. Um, verses 14 to 23, Israel displays God's glory through his mercy. Verses 24 to 29, Israel is a people called by God. And verses 30 to 33, Israel is a family of faith in Christ. All right, Paul's concern for Israel, his kin. Um, He was a Jew. You you might um, be reminded of that. Uh, He calls himself, you know, a Jew of Jews, uh, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, He's very proud of his Jewish heritage. But he's very sad and concerned for Israel. You see, the pattern of Paul's ministry as one who had a sense of calling from God to go to the Gentiles, even though his calling was to the Gentiles, he would go into a city, and you might know Paul, you know, travelled around the world, that part of the world at that point in time, missionary journeys, and he'd go to a city, and what he would do first is he would go to the synagogue the place where the Jews were, where they met, where they worshipped God. And he would go to the synagogue and he would proclaim Christ there to the Jews. And inevitably what ended up happening in so many places was that some might believe, but a lot did not, and they would kick him out. And then he would preach to the Gentiles. And so Paul had this happen on a number of occasions. And so he's observed the fact over and over again that some of the Jews accept the message of Christ, but that a lot of them don't. And that really strikes to his heart because he feels a sense of kindred with his fellow Jews. You can understand this uh, when you look at culture in Australia. I don't know if you've encountered um, people from uh, other cultural backgrounds who've emigrated to Australia, but it's very common that they gather together in groups of their own people, if you want to put it that way. Um, And so you even get uh, clubs you know, like the Italian club or the, you know, the Bosnian club or whatever. Um, there are these places where people actually say, we're going to gather together with other people who are of the same ethnic background as us. Because there's a sense of um, identity there, a sense of belonging. And Paul feels this sense of belonging and identity with his Jewish sisters and brothers. And so, of course, he is concerned for them because so many of them are not accepting 
the gospel of Jesus. And that's why he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he even makes this outlandish sort of a a statement. I wish that I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he's saying, you know, if it was possible for me to um, sort of be cut off from God and not experience the blessings of Christ so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could, I would want that to happen. That's how important this is to him. Uh, I uh, have a a friend, um, haven't been in touch with him for a while, but it's a guy that I'd spent some time with and he'd become a Christian and he was very passionately wanting for his family to become Christians as well because he was concerned for their eternal destiny. And this is the concern that Paul has for the Jews. He really passionately wants them to come to Christ even if it meant him not experiencing the blessing of Christ that's a a pretty big statement isn't it so Paul has a concern for Israel and his concern for Israel stems from this That they've received the blessings of God, but they haven't then followed through in faith. And we'll we'll see how that works out through the rest of the the passage here. But in verses 4 and 5, we read this. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, to Israel belongs the adoption. That's not a word that's actually used in the Old Testament of Israel. It's a New Testament concept um, that we're adopted as daughters and sons of God. But in the Old Testament, you do have the idea just without the word. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 4, God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy chapter 14, You are the sons of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Jeremiah chapter 31. uh, For I am a father to Israel. Hosea. You are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Sorry, I've read that a little wrong. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God and in Hosea chapter 11 uh, when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son here's these repeated ideas of God being a father to Israel now when we're talking here um, in this chapter we're sort of talking about Israel as a collective it's interesting um, The word Israel is not used in the book of Romans anywhere except in chapters 9 to 11. 
And it's used 11 times in those three chapters. And this is really talking about the people of Israel. And Paul's concern is for the collective group of the people of Israel. If, if they are God's chosen people, how is it that so many of them are not following Christ, are not included in God's people now? So to Israel was given the adoption. They were called God's son collectively as a nation. To them was given the glory. We see when God leads them out of Egypt that the glory of God appears to them in the cloud that led them from the, the land of Egypt. Uh, then in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses has gone up to receive the Ten Commandments, um, God says that he will send his glory to pass by Moses so that Moses can experience to some degree um, the, the glory of God, the majesty of God, but it's too much for a person to experience. So God says, um, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This is how incredible is the glory and majesty of God. And then we read a little later in Exodus chapter 40, the, the cloud that covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God reveals himself to Israel. You've got a, an incredible um, sort of series of events in the book of Ezekiel about the glory of God leaving the temple. Remember, this is in the time of, of the exile when the Jews had been taken in exile to Babylon. And symbolically in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God leaves the temple, but then at the end of the book, it comes back. And so Israel had received the glory of God. They'd received the covenants. Um, the covenant with Abraham was talked about in that video earlier. There's covenants made with um, David. Uh, it talks about a covenant that was made with Jacob. They were the receivers of the covenants. They were the receivers of the law. Moses came with the Ten Commandments and then you have all of the rest of the law that's given in the, the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus. They were the receivers of the worship and the promises they were the ones to whom were given the patriarchs, Abraham himself, through whom the whole nation of Israel came. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would bring the blessing promised to Abraham that through your family, all families of the earth will be blessed the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, a descendant in the flesh. 
So they've received all of these wonderful blessings from God. And Paul then goes on to address this question. You know, the the big question here. If Israel is God's chosen people, does the inclusion that Gentiles mean that the word of God has failed? Like, he comes to address that question in verse 6, where we read, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's the crux of Paul's argument. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Uh, This is a pretty radical sort of a thought. Because the Jews believed that because they were descended from Abram, that therefore they were okay. They were God's chosen people. But Paul goes on to show that that's not the case. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You might be saying, well, how can you not be children if you're his offspring? It would be like me saying to my uh, two daughters and my two sons, well, yeah, you're descended from me, but you're not my offspring. Doesn't make sense, does it? Paul is saying here, this is actually the case. And he gives an example. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now in the video that we saw, it, it mentions the fact that they, Abraham and Sarah, they tried to make God's promise come true of their own will. And so Sarah says to Abraham, I'll go to my servant and have a child with her. And so Abraham does that. He goes into Hagar and he has a child with Hagar, Ishmael. Ishmael is not, and his descendants, they're not part of Israel. They are descendants of Abraham, but they're not counted as his children. And then he gives another example. Uh, Well, he he gives them an example. I guess a description of what that means. He says in verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The promise that was given to Abraham, which we read in verse 9, is about this time next year, I will return. This is when um, the angel visits Abram. And says, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so we're told that the line of Abram is reckoned through Isaac. Verse 7, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, not through Ishmael. It's not children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise. And in case one example is not enough, we go down the, the genealogy line, verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so we saw in the video earlier that um, Jacob, he, he's a deceiver, as his name is called, and he puts um, like skins, animal skins on his arms so that he goes in to his father to receive the blessing, the birthright that was legitimately Esau's. Esau, the older son, and Jacob receives it. And we're told here that this was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. And the children of Esau, they're not included in Israel. They were children of Abraham. They're in the line of Abraham. They're in the line of Isaac. But the children of Esau became the nation of Edom. And they are not included in the people of Israel. And so Paul's point is that Israel are those who are the children of God's promises. God's promises. I've said Israel is the children of God's promises. It sounds grammatically wrong, but we're talking here about the nation The nation, God's chosen people, are the children of God's promises. It doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on human procreation. It depends on the promise of God. And so what we're learning is that it's always been that Israel, that those who are included in Israel are not those necessarily who are biologically descended from Abram, but those who receive the promise of God. You could go into these things in a lot more detail, but we're trying to cover a large passage here. Uh, so I'll just keep moving through them. If you'd like to uh, explore some of this in more depth, tonight when we go through this passage, at the end we're going to have a Q&A. Um, so please feel free to come to the 5.30 service if you want to ask questions about this. In verses 14 to 23, we see that Israel displays God's glory through his mercy. Um, and so what we have here is uh, taking those ideas that have been explained there uh, amongst, you know, the, the talking about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, although Ishmael's not named, and, and Rebekah and Isaac and then Jacob and Esau, all of those people who are named are to remind us that those who are included in Israel are the children of the promise rather than the biological children of Abram. And then 
here's really in verses 14 to 23, uh, Paul, I guess, trying to answer the argument that people might say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) It's not fair. What shall we say then? Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, says Paul. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And, and what you've got here in verses 14 to, um, to 24 and, and beyond a bit is a whole lot of quotes from the Old Testament where Moses is, is quoting the Old Testament to make it clear that it is by God's choice that people are included into the people of God. That God is sovereign. It's a a difficult thought for us because we love the idea of free will. And I'm not going to get into the whole, um, you know, Calvin versus Armenian debate today. Um, In my head, all right, uh, and I don't know, I'm happy to have this discussion. Come tonight, ask a question at the Q&A. But in my head, God chooses us. But we also choose God. And I don't see that those things have to be mutually exclusive. Um, So I'm a bit of a both and person. I'm not fully Calvinistic. I'm not fully Armenian. As if one is to the exclusion of the other. God chooses us. And, And that's what Paul is making clear here in this passage. But I also truly believe that we choose God. Come tonight, ask a question if you want. Um, So God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, what the problem was in the church at Rome... You had a group of people who were of Jewish background who'd become believers in Jesus, but they believed that they were somehow still special because they were Jews, that they had maybe a greater status because they'd received the law, because they had observance of the Torah as something that they could follow. And here, Paul is saying... It's not dependent on human will or exertion. It's not something that you can claim as if somehow you are special because you're descended from Abram. It depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That whole episode of God bringing the Hebrew people out of Egypt was so that God's name would be exalted and proclaimed in all the earth. In everything that God does in choosing the people of Israel back in the Old Testament and in everything that God does now in choosing the people of Christ 
the purpose is that God might be glorified, that his name might be exalted. And Paul raises another objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So uh, basically saying, hey, if I do the wrong thing, that's because God pre-programmed me that way. I had no choice in the matter. Paul says, who are you, O man or woman, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honoured use and another for dishonourable use? Basically, this is about understanding who we are in humility, created by God. Have we any right to complain to God about how he made us? The answer is no. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, God's calling people to himself. He's calling Jews, he's calling Gentiles, he's called me, he's called you. And his calling to people is so that he might be glorified so that his glory might be shown through the mercy that he extends to sinful people who don't deserve in any way to be accepted by God. But because of his great love, because of his mercy, he extends to us the offer of forgiveness through Jesus and salvation that he might be honoured. God does... Israel, and now we're talking about us, about the church as Israel. Israel displays God's glory through his mercy. Uh, Israel is a people called by God. I'm just, there's a couple of quotes there that bring to us the fact that we are called by God, that those who are included in the promise of God are those who are called by God. i just keep moving. And finally, at the end of the passage, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, and just people who weren't Jews, they were just going about their lives doing whatever they wanted. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. It comes through faith in Jesus. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel got sidetracked. Somehow through it all, even though time and time again, God reminds them that they were, they were there because of his grace. He reminds them repeatedly that he had 
brought them out of Egypt as an act of God's grace. But they thought that they would attain the status of being God's people, that they would maintain that by adherence to the law instead of by faith in God. And so in the church, we have a resetting where people are called by God and attain righteousness through faith, even as Abraham attained righteousness through faith because he trusted God when God made the promises to him. And so we, in this church, in the church worldwide, we're a family adopted by God as his daughters and sons. We're a collective group who come together by faith in Jesus Christ. What's the application? You might have been in the church 80 years. You might have been in the church 10 years. When I say in the church, I mean you might have been coming along to church services. But just because you come along to church services doesn't mean that your children are the promise. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. You're not included because your parents are Christians. You're not included in the people of God because you come to church every week. Oh, for those that come to church every week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it doesn't work like that. We are only included when we place faith in Christ ourselves. You don't become a car because you're born in a garage. You don't become a Christian because you're born in a Christian family. You don't become a Christian because you're here every week. You become part of God's people when you accept by faith the promise of God that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for sin. When you take the elements of communion and by faith receive the gift of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I want to challenge and urge you today, whatever age you are, if you feel like you're part of the church, but you haven't stood up and said, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to place my trust in him, then I want to encourage you today to make that step. We're planning a baptism service for the end of the month. It'd be awesome to have some people saying, I know 
that I want to place my trust in Jesus. I know that Jesus is the one who forgives my sin, who died for me. Don't assume that you're in the people of God because you've descended from the right stock. You have to be one who's a child of the promise, who accepts the promise of God. Let me pray. Lord God, I ask that we might examine ourselves today. And if there are any here that have not made that step personally, who've been coming because family comes, who've been coming because it's the right thing to do, but that haven't placed their trust in you, that today might be the opportunity that they do that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.